When someone is injured at work, you guys are probably familiar with this, when they're injured, they usually rely on workers' comp insurance to provide for their medical needs, to compensate them to some degree for lost wages, and also if they lose like a limb, and they have loss of a hand or the ability to function, workers' comp insurance sometimes steps in and and tries to make up for that. They don't, they don't do it very well, but they, they do it. Well, after many years at sea, a, a pirate, <clears throat> he decided to retire. And since he had suffered injuries on the job, he thought he should uh, collect on his workers' comp insurance. He had a wooden leg. Yeah, you know where this is going. He had a wooden leg, a hook where his right hand used to be, and a patch over his right eye. The agent assured him that he would be compensated if the injuries were work-related. You know, that's the key. That's the question. Did this happen at work, and is it our responsibility to cover your loss? So the agent asked him, the pirate, how did you get your wooden leg? And in a booming voice, don't laugh, in a booming voice, me and me mates were on the high seas when the boom swang round and knocked me into the sea where a shark bit off me leg. That's my best pirate Okay, that's it. That's all I got, guys. So the agent replied, well, that is certainly work-related. How did you lose your hand? (laughs) Well, matey, me and my mates were on the high seas when the boom swang around and knocked me into the sea and the shock bit off my hand. Well, that's that's also work-related. Now, how did you lose your eye? Pirate said, well, matey, I was lying on the deck one balmy day catching some rays when this seagull flew by and dropped his duty right in my eye. And the agent said, well, what does that have to do with the loss of your eye? Well, it were the first day with me hook. <laughs> All right, I thought I'd start off a little light. There's always critics. Always critics. Well, the pirate was hoping to be compensated for his physical losses while on the job. In our text today, the Apostle Peter did not lose his hand or his leg or his eye. But he and the other 11 disciples had experienced personal loss to one degree or another because, specifically, of their decision to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus. And Peter wanted to know, since he and the others had suffered real loss, What is the compensation they could look forward to as Jesus' disciples? That's really the issue at hand. So I've titled this message, Christian Compensation. Christian Compensation. I'm going to be reading Mark chapter 10, verses 20 through 31. Just follow along with me. Picking up in verse 28, Peter began to say to him, that is Jesus, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. All right, that's our text this morning. That's what we'll be looking at. And if you open up your bulletins on the inside left side is an outline that you can follow along. We're going to consider the benefit of being a Christian so that we will not grow weary in following Christ. The benefit of being a Christian so that we will not grow weary in following Christ. Very simple. Very simple, but hopefully impactful. So let me remind you of the immediate context, in case you haven't been here, that we've been looking at and was referenced even this morning for the past two weeks. Jesus had just got through telling a very rich young ruler to sell all that he had, 100%. Give it to the poor and come follow him. Additionally, Jesus promised that rich young ruler that he would have treasure in heaven. Treasure in heaven. That's the context right before this discussion between Peter and Jesus. But if you remember, the man was unwilling to comply with Jesus' instructions. 
And he left grieving, the text says, because he had many possessions. He was just unwilling to part with his stuff. So the disciples were there. They witnessed this whole encounter between this rich young man and Jesus. And this no doubt got Peter thinking. When Jesus called us to follow him, we necessarily had to give up or walk away from things that were very dear to us in order to follow after Christ. And we see that in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, and Mark chapter 2, verse 4. We've already looked at those texts in the past. So now Peter's thinking, well, what then can we look forward to? Since we have willingly suffered loss for the sake of Jesus Christ in order to follow Him. Now in our text, look back at it. It just says it this way. Mark chapter 10, verse 28. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Two other Gospels, Luke and Matthew, also record this encounter. In Luke's Gospel, it records it this way. Peter said, Luke chapter 18, verse 28, See, we have left our homes and followed you. Okay? Matthew's Gospel, though, makes it very clear what's going on in Peter's mind. In that text, it says, Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? What are we going to have? He just promised this rich young man treasure in heaven, but he told him, sell all you have, give it to the poor, come follow me. Peter and the disciples really have nothing. They've left behind their jobs, their homes, even their families to some degree, to some degree, in order to follow Christ. And now he just wants to know, how are we going to be compensated? To put it bluntly, they are saying, Jesus, what is in it for us? Wow. Now maybe some would expect Jesus to have reacted harshly towards Peter. You know, saying something like this, you know what, Peter? You should just be thankful I even asked you. Right? How dare you point out to me what you had to sacrifice? Oh, let me remind you, I'm on my way to Jerusalem to die on a cross for you. How dare you even ask me what you can expect? Here's what you can expect, Peter. Misery and pain and sadness and more sacrifice. Now enough with your dumb, stupid questions. But Jesus didn't say that, beloved. He didn't say anything like that. He didn't criticize Peter. In fact, his response is very different than what we might expect. So we shouldn't criticize Peter, because Jesus didn't. Look back at the text, Mark chapter 10, verse 29. Jesus said, truly, absolutely, you can take it to the bank. I say to you, there is no one, not one, who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, we'll talk about that, and in the age to come, eternal life. Wow. So that brings us to the first point. The compensation is much greater than any loss. The compensation is much greater than any loss. Jesus said, in effect, listen guys, anyone who has willingly suffered loss because of their commitment to me and the gospel, they will be compensated in this life, in this life and in the age or the world to come. I didn't say it. Jesus said it. Now, Jesus' compensation is not like workers' compensation. Any of you have experienced that. Workers' compensation at best partially compensates. It cannot make you whole. And it certainly will never give you more than you lost. But Jesus said in this life, those who have made sacrifices for Him will receive back a hundredfold 
hundredfold. Now that word literally means what you probably think it means. It means hundred times as much. Hundred times as much. However, the word used here is not intended to be taken literally, but it simply communicates the idea of the highest degree of return. The highest degree of return. Or, you could say it this way, anyone who has suffered loss for the sake of Christ and the Gospel will be reimbursed many times over. Okay? Let me show you that, just so you understand that's the idea. Genesis 26, this hundredfold word, although prosperity preachers like to use it, and I'll talk about that in a second, it's not used very often in the Scripture, but in Genesis 26, this word is used, verse 12, and it says, And Isaac sowed. It means he was, a, he was in agriculture, so he's a farmer. That means he threw out seed, he prepped the land, he threw out seed. He sowed in that land. This has nothing to do with him sowing money. He sowed seed, actual seed, and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. So, in the text, the writer is saying it's, it's not as if they went out to Isaac's crop and they counted each head of grain or whatever it was he was planting and they determined it was 100 times as much and did all the math and therefore they said, yeah, his crop returned a hundredfold. They're simply saying that his crop did as well as it could. It was abundant in supply. It did extremely well. It produced many times over. It was a good crop. That's all they're saying. That's all they're saying. So, in this age, the world we're in now, before Christ comes and establishes His glorious kingdom, Jesus promised His people a compensation that will far exceed the losses they may experience because of their ongoing decision to follow after Christ. That's the point. That's what the text is saying. Now, what does this compensation look like? Well, Jesus' statement is difficult to understand. It is. Let's look back at the text. Let's not try to avoid it. He says in Mark chapter 10, verse 30, okay, they're going to receive back many times as much in abundance, a hundredfold now in this time. He's not talking about a future age. He talks about that when he refers to eternal life. He's talking about right now, in this age. Now in this age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. A hundredfold. That's what he says. So, let's ask some questions. Does he mean that Peter, who said, remember in Luke chapter 18, 28, Jesus, we left our homes. Okay? So, should Peter have expected to have become a real estate tycoon. Hey, listen, I gave up my house, so what I can expect in compensation for that is a lot more houses coming my way. A hundredfold. Maybe not a hundred times as many, but an abundant supply. See, that's what the prosperity preachers try to do with this. But what's interesting about them is they say, if you give money to my ministry, then I'll pray a special hundredfold blessing over it and you'll be loaded. You just got to plant that seed of your money into my bank, have faith that the hundredfold blessing I'm praying over it will actually take place. And if it doesn't happen, it's because of you and your lack of faith. Keep trying, though. I am not kidding. I wish I was kidding. And so people continue to invest in that. But that this is not even... Jesus isn't saying, hey, if you sell your house and give it to me. He's saying if you have to leave something, if you're separated from something, for my sake in the Gospels, you can expect a hundredfold. And does it mean actually houses? Does it mean that? If it does mean that. And by the way, if it does, wow, how many people would be willing to follow Christ? I'll just deed my house over to the church or I'll sell it and give it to the poor and then I'll just sit back and wait for the phone to ring with all these mortgages coming my way. What? That's, is that what he's saying? Is that what Jesus was thinking about? Well, if it was, beloved, there is no record of it happening. There is no record of that happening. 
In fact, the church experienced nothing but persecution and suffering and loss. Especially if you go back and study church history for the first 300 years, it was bad. It was real bad on a level that I don't think we can, we can even relate to. So was, was Jesus just an unethical salesman? He overpromised and underdelivered. It's like, well, my boys are asking and I don't want them to leave. Hey, listen, guys, I know you gave all that stuff up. Don't you worry, I got your back. I'll pay you back a hundred times. It's all coming to you. Just keep believing. Boy, they must have been disappointed. No, that's, that is not what it means. That is not what it means. It cannot mean that. A better view, I believe, and it's difficult to understand, but a better view and is consistent with what we see in the life of the church is that giving up or leaving that Jesus refers to or in verse 29, if you leave behind these things, mother, brother, sister, father, land, possessions, that's physical in nature. When he says what you'll gain or receive back a hundredfold, that's spiritual in nature. So let me see if I can explain this with this quote. I thought it was very, was very helpful to me. Maybe it will be helpful to you. It goes like this. In the century since Christ's death, many dedicated disciples have found fulfillment in these words in their own lives. They have had to leave their people and possessions in order to follow Christ. But for every fleshly relationship lost, they gained hundreds of brothers and sisters in Christ. For every alienated parent, that just simply means your parents disown you because you choose to pursue Christianity, which happens, beloved. For every alienated parent, hundreds in God's family to care for them. For every possession lost, Spiritual blessings many times greater. I think that's what Jesus is saying. I think that makes sense. I think that is what we see in the church and after its formation, the fulfillment of that actually happening. Hebert, or a commentator, says it this way, It will be a return in kind, yet different. A spiritual relationship and possessions in exchange for natural connections and material substance. In other words, those family relationships that you have that sometimes are lost because you followed Christ. Or even just as simple as you having to walk away from your family, not because you've disowned them, but because you're now committed full-time to a mission place on the other side of the globe. Even something as simple as that that will be replaced in abundance as you gain spiritual family, brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in Christ. In fact, you see this kind of thing going on in Mark chapter 3, verse 31. These are the words of Christ here. It says, His biological mother and His brother, Jesus, brothers, came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. This is a, before this, basically the family thinks that Jesus has lost his mind. He has all these people crowding him out. He hasn't even taken time to eat. So they've come now to save their, their brother and, and their son, they think. It says a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, we talked about this when we went through this text. Did Jesus just develop amnesia? No. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, inside the house, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus is emphasizing new type of relationships. Spiritual relationships. Something that unites us together that is Jesus Christ. In a way, beloved, that is even more significant than the blood relationships that we have. As, as wonderful as those are, this is even more significant. Or it should be. 
So he says then in Mark chapter 10, verse 30, after he makes this promise, then he says, and in the age to come, as if that wasn't good enough, you want to know what you have coming, Peter? In the age to come, eternal life. A hundredfold now, eternal life in the world to come. Abundant spiritual blessings in this world and the glories of eternal life with God in the next. One writer says, to think of discipleship, that is following after Christ, solely in terms of its cost and sacrifices, is to think of it wrongly. It's to think of it wrongly. As though in marrying a beautiful bride, a young man would only think about what he is giving up. Right? He doesn't do that. He doesn't, hopefully he doesn't do that. Man, I can't believe what I'm giving up for this. No. He's looking at that girl, that young lady. He's saying, his eyes are focused. The prize is before him. He's excited for what's about to happen. For what he's going to get. And the writer is simply saying, to focus only on the loss or the sacrifice, that is part of following Christ, would be a mistake. And Jesus doesn't do it either. He certainly tells you to count the cost. But he doesn't stop there. Yeah, there's cost with following Christ, but there is great compensation. He says to Peter's sound sounding, sad sounding statement of having left everything to follow Jesus, Jesus promises a hundred times as much. The sacrifices they make in leaving homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields to follow Jesus are nothing compared to the returns they will receive in the community of faith now and in heaven in the life to come. That's what Jesus is saying, I believe. Now, in the midst of this wonderful and hopeful promise, Jesus makes this little statement that I am sure a lot of people would wish he would have just left out. Look back at the text. Mark chapter 10, verse 29. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, you can just see the look on their faces. Yes, this is, this is incredible. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. What's next? Well, what? Maybe Jesus stuttered. With persecutions? Why well, doesn't even fit there, Jesus? And then he, after that, and in the age to come, eternal life. This is like a beautiful sandwich with nasty meat in the middle. What are you doing messing up a good sandwich, Jesus? Promise, promise. Oh. Persecutions. So that brings us to the second point. The compensation is not without difficulties. It's not without difficulties. Being a Christian, and I've said this before, and some of us know it very well, will not be a life of ease, beloved. It will not be. At least in this world. At least in this world. In fact, the opposite is much more likely. Being a Christian, and I'm not talking about by name only, okay, but by a life that is marked by following after Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. It doesn't mean I raised my hand and now I'm a Christian. No. To be a Christian is a life that is marked by following after Christ. We're all in different places in that life. But if you are a Christian, you are following after Christ. It will bring difficulties into your life that you otherwise would never have experienced. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. These are familiar passages. I only bring them up to remind you. Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, that would be Christians, will be persecuted. Fantastic. Absolutely. That's a wonderful promise we can take to the bank. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. For it has been granted. I laugh in a sense when I read that because granted means a gift of favor. That's what it means. Well, what's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, yes, but also suffer for His sake. 
Being persecuted is being harassed in a manner that's designed to injure, grieve, or afflict. Okay? That's the simple definition. Being harassed in a manner that's designed to injure, grieve, or afflict. People throughout history, beloved, throughout our history have been and are still persecuted for various reasons. Right? So, for instance, people are persecuted because of their race. Still goes on. Even in this country. People are persecuted because of their appearance. They don't look like everyone else. So they're harassed. People are persecuted because of their personal views. But the persecution that Jesus promised has nothing to do with with that really. It is directly associated with a person's relationship with Him and the Gospel. Remember, He says in verse 29, yeah, you've left all that stuff, not just to leave it, for my sake and the Gospel. And yes, there will be persecutions because of that. This was certainly very significant to those Christians in the first century who were living in Rome and were reading the Gospel of Mark for the very first time. Why? Because, beloved, they were living under the rule of Nero. Nero was the ruler and he hated Christianity and he despised Christians. And so persecution for them was a normal part of their life because they followed after Christ. The normal part of their life. Those words of Jesus would have been confirmation to their ears that what they were experiencing should not be thought of as unique or strange experience or worse, that maybe God had abandoned them or He was mad at them. And that is why they were suffering for their faith. When persecution comes because of our relationship to and proclamation of Jesus Christ, knowing that Jesus said it would come to those who follow Him is a strong reminder. In fact, it is another evidence that you actually are His disciple. And because you are His disciple then you also know that in the age to come, that's the other part of that promise, in the age to come, according to verse 30, there will be no more persecution for that person. Look back at, look back at the text. You notice it says, listen, at the end of verse 30, with persecutions, that's attached to the compensation in this life. But then he says, and in the age to come, Eternal life. And he no longer mentions persecutions. So that allows me, as a believer in Jesus Christ who's experiencing persecution because of my faith, to press on in hope. To press on in hope. Or as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time... This is how I think of them, Paul says... I don't know how you think about them, but this is how I think about them. They are not even worth comparing. They don't measure up in the slightest degree with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's what Paul said. And Paul, he knew suffering. He knew persecution. Everywhere he went, they were like dogs on his tail, tracking him down and harassing him, throwing him into jail, trying to kill him. Why? Because he stood up for Christ because he proclaimed the Gospel. Paul says, you know what all that? It's not even worth comparing. One writer says, the reward of eternal life makes the sacrifices of discipleship look insignificant in comparison to the lavish blessing of God. Okay, last point. The compensation is not based on human standards. By the way, before I get to that point, because I actually have a little time this morning, I can't believe it. Hey. I think for our culture right now, 
this this message that I'm giving would would meet with other cultures and people in other parts of the world and they would they would grab onto it and they would bring it to their chest and they would love it because we have brothers and sisters in Christ that on a daily basis suffer persecution are under the threat of arrest or even death and certainly harassment by neighbors and family and communities and governments that happens right now in the 21st century so they they understand this in a way that that maybe is a little bit hard for us we certainly do suffer persecution if we're living for Christ and speaking out for Christ and even that's kind of strange don't you think think about this Christ calls us to love other people right love our enemies even treat others as better than ourselves. Why would anybody persecute us for that? They persecute us because we talk about Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ says, here's the deal. I am laying claim to you. Repent and follow Me. I am King. And they say, oh, I don't think so. I am King. I will not submit to you. You have no authority over my life. And so as Christians show up in the community and they pronounce that, Jesus Christ, glorious King, repent and come under Him. That is what they hate. They hate that. That is what they persecute. Light has come into the world and darkness hates the light. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you too. They're not persecuting me because I'm kind to them. Why would they? They're not persecuting me because I'm loving them. They're persecuting me because I represent Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ represents to them a break with their supposed authority in their life. That is their own authority. And it forces them to think again about the fact that they need to surrender to Jesus Christ as King. So they persecute. They persecute. Third, by the way, I'm going to get to that point eventually. I think, and I don't want this to be true, but I think that our culture is moving quickly to a place where we might begin to experience some of those things. So you know, if this message doesn't mean as much to you now, it may mean a lot more to you in five years or ten years as our society continues to become more and more secular, anti-religious, anti-Christian, making even a mockery of Christianity and those who believe in what they call our fables and myths and so on and so forth. And our intolerant ways because we simply say what Jesus says in His Word. Beloved, it's coming. It's coming. So don't be shocked when it comes. Third, the compensation is not based on human standards. Look back at the text. Mark chapter 10, last verse 31. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now, wow, that's what is that all about? There are several opinions about what Jesus meant. This is just another strange verse. But I think that Jesus did not leave us without an answer. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, where this same story takes place, immediately preceding it, or after that, he tells this parable. So I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 19. It's just one book to the left. The first book in the New Testament. The first Gospel in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 19. And we're going to begin in verse 30. And this is where chapter breaks are not helpful. If you, if you don't know this, let me just tell you now. Chapters and verses were not a part of the original writings. Those were added really for those who begin to make commentaries about the text. They begin to write things or pastors or scholars were writing about the text and trying to understand its meaning. In order to communicate to other people where they are and what they're talking about, 
chapters and verses were put in so they could reference the section easier. Instead of saying, halfway through Mark is what I'm talking about, they can say Mark 7 or Mark 8 or something like that, verse 13. So, understand that as those have been put in, they break sometimes the flow of thought that you would naturally have when you're reading a letter. Okay, And that's the case here, I think, because when you get to chapter 20, it stops, but the story is just continuing. So we're going to pick it up in chapter 19, verse 30, and this is Jesus saying the exact same thing He said before, and in the same context. He says, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And now He gives a parable. For the kingdom of heaven. We're just going to read through it, and we're not going to labor hard to try to figure every detail out, but just try to grab the main theme. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After greeting with the laborers, agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, that's basically a day's wage, he sent them into his vineyard, his farm. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. In other words, these are guys waiting for work. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. So the day is progressing. And about the eleventh hour, so now we're talking about basically almost the end of the work day. Okay? This is the end of the work day. He goes back to where these day laborers are. And he went out and he found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Okay, so beginning with the last means the last people that came on board to work in his vineyard would be paid first, and the first people that were hired to work in the vineyard would be paid last. Just keep following along with me. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, so understand this is the end of the day. They only had to work one hour. When those who were hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. A denarius is a full day's wage. Now, when those hired first came... They thought they would receive more. Now stop right there. Doesn't that make sense? Okay? So you hired me at the beginning of the day. I worked all day. You hired Bob over there just an hour ago. Now I'm waiting in line to get my wages. Now I know you told me you were going to give me a denarius, but then I see Bob, who only worked one hour, get the same thing you promised me. Whoa, I'm going to really make out here because I've been working all day. Right? Would that not, that's fair, you would think? Okay. Verse 10. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have. Born the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Right? Because they work, they work through the whole day. I, you can, I can feel for this guy. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose? with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And then he says in verse 16, so the last will be first, and the first will be last. So this statement is made on both sides of this parable. So this parable is the answer to what he's really saying. So, Having said that, it's meant to explain what he means by the first will be last and the last first. So the point, I think, the main point of the story is the master of the house, here it's God, speaking of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, he compensates his people not on the basis of time served. Hours, years, 
or even based on the degree of difficulty experienced in their service. We have something for that. We call it hazard pay. I don't know. Some of you may be familiar with it, but if some jobs, if you do something in that job that is more dangerous, you get an extra compensation. Your pay goes up because it's called hazard pay. Well, these guys, in a sense, did something more dangerous. They worked through the middle of the day in the scorching heat, and the other guys didn't have to experience any of that. Their degree of difficulty in their service was greater than the guy that came on at the end of the day in the last hour in the cool of the day, and yet they were paid the same. But Jesus does not pay that way. He does not pay to human standards. He gives them according to His sovereign grace. According not to human merit or effort or even how much they had to leave to follow Jesus or suffer for Christ's sake. In the end, those who had been working all day in the Master's vineyard received the exact same wage, no less than they were promised. No less. But they received the exact same wage as those who had only been working one hour for that day. The result was that all the laborers were equally compensated. They all equally experienced the blessings of being in the Master's vineyard. John MacArthur says this, Similarly, the thief on the cross, which you can read about in Luke chapter 23. Do you remember the thief on the cross? He was dying next to Jesus. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He was a wicked man. He knew he belonged on that cross. He knew Jesus was innocent. Jesus said to him, Do you remember? Today you will be with me in paradise. The thief on the cross will enjoy the full blessings of heaven alongside those who have labored their whole lives for Christ. Such is the grace of God. Now, beloved, if that rubs you the wrong way, then consider verse 15 of Matthew 20 again. Where the master of the house says, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Begrudge means to resent something somebody has. It, it more literally means an envious eye. Some translations translate it that way. An evil eye or an envious eye. Or an eye of envy. That's what he's saying. And I think this is the warning at the end of this, this wonderful promise. Peter, you don't even know how much you're going to suffer. You think you've left things behind? You're going to die for me. Right? That's what's going to happen to Peter. Jesus knows that. Peter doesn't know that. But Peter, let me remind you of something. I don't pay on human scale. Your blessings are not going to be more in the life to come because you died for me or you were crucified upside down as history tells us, church history. It's not even going to be the case that because you started now, because I've called you to Myself, you've walked with Me through all My ministry, you will live your life, the remaining of your life for Me. Others will come on board. Some even near the end of their life. Peter, don't be confused. You're not earning the blessings of God. I'm going to give them to you. And all those who follow Me and suffer loss, I'm going to take care of them. But don't start thinking, you're better. You deserve more. Don't start think, looking at my generosity and being upset with me. Is it not my right to give what is mine? Instead, Peter, be excited that Billy Bob got in at the end of his life. Be excited for him because he will experience the blessings of heaven. Heaven. 
And remember, it's all of grace. Because Peter, you don't even belong with me really. You have no right to me. Remember, I called you. I called you, Peter. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to give myself up for you. You've done nothing. So yeah, Peter, you're going to suffer great. You're going to have more loss in your life. But just remember, those who are first will be last, and those who are last will be first. One writer says, no believer is qualified to receive God's least favor. Let me say that again. No believer is qualified to receive God's least favor, much less salvation. (laughs) And even the best person by human standards is blessed immeasurably beyond what he could possibly deserve. So here's the conclusion. This life will be difficult. To one degree or another, it's going to be difficult as we live our lives out for Jesus Christ, as we proclaim Him, as we tell others about Him. You'll experience difficulties that you otherwise would not as a Christian. You will experience loss. You will experience persecution. Some of you have already. Some of you have made a stand for Jesus Christ and because of that, your family has disowned you. Some of you will make decisions to serve God in ways that will cost you greatly. You will be separated from your family because you'll have to leave them. You might have to surrender your home. But God will abundantly compensate. He will abundantly compensate. Not only in this life, beloved, but in the life to come. Why? Why does He do that? You know what? That parable that we just read about the vineyard, He doesn't have to do it. It's my stuff. I don't even have to. I could have left you out there in the parking lot waiting to be hired all day long. But I came and I invited you into my vineyard. It's my stuff. But He is a God of boundless grace and He delights in pouring it out on His people. So, beloved, may we trust in His promises and rely on that grace so that we do not grow weary as we follow after our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and we thank You for the promises. And these are actually promises that we can hold on to. We can apply them to our lives. They were not made specifically to a group of people or one person. But Jesus is clear. Anyone, not one who has suffered loss, will go uncompensated. Not one. And Father, as we we just consider that text and think that through, how silly it is that we would think that compensation equals mansions and cars and a big bank account. How pathetic! Glory is that. It all disappears in a moment. And we leave it behind when we die. But Father, indeed, the compensation is so much greater that we would become a part of the body of Christ. And by that, be brought into a family of not a few, but of hundreds and thousands, and indeed, hundreds of thousands of brothers and sisters in Christ who also have given themselves to the Lord Jesus, who also have been redeemed and saved by His sacrifice. And now we are united together, not just in this life, but forever. Father, even just thinking through the multiplication of spiritual blessings that Christians enjoy because of Jesus Christ, Even just thinking about the peace that we can have in the midst of absolute chaos. The hope that we have of eternal life and the age to come. These are things that our neighbors who do not know Jesus Christ do not have. So Father, surrendering whatever it is in this world and gaining those type of things, that is a hundredfold. 
That is a blessing. That is abundance. Father, we're also reminded of the persecution that will come to those who follow Christ. Father, help us to be even the type of people that would live in such a way that such things might even happen. Not that we seek out persecution. Not that we go looking for it. But Father, if we are living for Jesus Christ and You have made it clear that the world hates Him, then they'll hate us. And Father, to some degree we can, we can find joy in these things because it is a sign that we are His. It identifies us with Him. For if He suffered, why would we think we wouldn't? And yet, Father, we have the hope of eternal life where persecution will be a thing that is never spoken of again. And so, Father, we press on. And as Paul says, we consider the sufferings of this present age not worthy to compare to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Praise God. Father, also help us, those who have been a Christian a long time, not to become haughty or arrogant or to look down upon others who maybe are just getting in or maybe get in at the very end of their life, but to just recognize that anything we have is solely and purely by Your grace. And the fact that we got in early is a blessing that we should be most excited for, that we experience that spiritual abundance while maybe our friends continue to live a life of decay and destruction as they are still captured by the grip of sin in their lives and have no hope for eternity. Father, we should be people that rejoice as the angels do when one would come to Jesus Christ bowing their knee in faith and repentance. And we should recognize that the same grace that saved them and brought them in brought us in and saved us. Father, lift Yourself up among us. Glorify Yourself and help us to know Your truth and believe it. In Jesus' name, Amen.